As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we're continuing through Genesis, and we're now in chapter 6. Uh, so turn to Jap- uh, Genesis chapter, chapter 6. We have just a few uh, verses here, but before we read them, uh, would you please pray with me? Lord God, Your way is perfect, and your word proves true. You are a shield to all who take refuge in you. We know this is true. So, Lord, now as we hear from your word, by your spirit, would you show us this perfect way in your true word? Help us to listen and to believe We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 6. We're taking up this morning just these first four verses. So, Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. This is the word of God. Now, let me say up front here that this text has fascinated and confused me for decades now. That's not an exaggeration. I was, in preparation for this Sunday, excited and nervous to get to delve into this text. But in preparing for the sermon this week, I found myself more fascinated and also more confused. We know that the scripture is very clear about very many things. There is no doubt in the scripture that our God is the only sovereign, almighty God who is above and over all, and that Christ is the Son of God, who is also of God, one with the Father, who is now sent into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, and and that Jesus is the only way and truth and life, and that we, in response to Jesus, are to repent of our sin and believe in him. That's true and abundantly clear in the scripture. The Bible is not a puzzle box then that only the smartest, most studied people can, can, figure it, can figure it out. God in his word has revealed himself to us. 
He's not hiding. He wants to show us who he is. But even though all of that's true, there are still some parts of the scriptures that we do not fully understand. Students of the Bible have sort of famously discussed and debated almost every part of these four verses for centuries, and there's still no consensus on its meaning. So uh, that's fine. That does not need to shake our faith or our confidence in the truth of the Bible one bit. We still have a firm, secure place to stand in Jesus, but it does put us in a bit of a pickle today. Because I've got to say something about this, don't I? And and as a preacher, it is not my work to give you theories or guesses or my own opinions about anything. I am here to tell us what God has said. And if what God has said in his word is ever unclear, I need to be clear that it's unclear. And to distinguish what God has clearly said from maybe what we think he said or means. So I'm going to do my best. Uh, Lord, help me in that. Today, there's not a single main topic with nice, tidy points and questions. If you've been with us for a while, we kind of get used to regular structures of those things. That's not happening today. Instead, we're just going to, to look at one single question, which is just a yes or no answer. And the question is this. Are monsters real? Are monsters real? And I'll spoil the answer to that question. The answer is yes. Now, what do we mean by that? Let me give us us some context here. By fast-forwarding several centuries in history beyond this day in Genesis to tell us a true story from the Bible that includes a man named Palti. You may not recognize his name, don't expect you to, but you'll recognize much of the story that's around him. Palti is a worshiper of Yahweh, of the Lord. He is part of God's people of Israel. And Palti is an important man. He's a strong and respected chief among his tribe. And Palti has recently, with the rest of the people, set up camp in the wilderness of Paran, in a tent with his family. And this is their home, if you can call it that, because in some sense, Palti and everyone else here is homeless. For the last several months, he and all these people have been nomads in the desert. And in all these months, Palti has, has, has had a lot of time to process the life he has recently had. Palsy still carries many scars, some of them literal on his back, some of them figurative, scars in his mind from the days when he was a slave in Egypt. And he would have clear memories of that. 
of the oppression that he faced there and how he and the people cried out to God for help and how God eventually uh, brought in Moses to confront Pharaoh to let the people go, bringing 10 plagues of judgment upon the Egyptians. Palti would have remembered every a bit of those things, but most especially that 10th plague and the final night they spent there in Egypt. That's the day that, that Moses brought the word of the Lord to Pharaoh that all the firstborn of the land, all of them, would die. Palti is a chief, which means he's a firstborn in his family. So he's one who is slated to die. But Palti was spared from the destroyer, from the angel of death, because God had given him and the rest of his people a substitute. That is, each family had slaughtered a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost so that the destroyer would pass over them and not take the life of their firstborn. But Palti would have sat in his home under the doorpost, under the blood of the lamb in that mercy, but he would have heard the dreadful sounds of judgment happening all around him. That's a day imprinted on his mind. And that very night was the night that Pharaoh finally said, get out, I am done with you, I'm going to let those people go, and the people of Israel left by the hand of God, and they are free, but not done. This is just the beginning for them. They still have a very long way to go, because now they're out of one situation, but they're not in somewhere where they need to be. They're now moving ahead toward the promised land. And so Palti, in this long process, is now having to remind himself and his kids that God's promises are true. That God isn't just going to free them out, but take them into a land flowing with milk and honey and abundant good. And the best thing about this promised land is that they will be home. And they'll be free to live and to love God. And today, in this moment, as they've set up camp in the wilderness, Palti can almost smell it. They're right on the edge of the promised land. The land of Canaan is in sight. They can look at it. But before they're able to enter, the Lord tells Moses that they need to send 12 men to scope out the land first. And Palti is one of those 12 that are supposed to go in first. So he packs up his gear, whatever it is that you take in to spy out a land. I'm sure he kissed his kids on the forehead, probably gave his wife an extra squeeze. She probably said something like, please be safe. And he said, I'll try. And then off he goes with the 12 and to spy out the land. And Palti's gone for a day and two and then a week and 10 days, 20 days, and you can imagine, and all of the people of the camp would start to wait and wonder that his family might begin to fear what might have happened. 25 days, 30 days, 35 days. At the end of the fourth day, off in the distance, we see Palti and the 12 coming, and someone probably yells out, they're back. <laughs> 
And a little kid running through all the camp. They're here, they're here, they're back. And so all of Israel is now buzzing with excitement. Everybody's gathering again to hear the report of the 12 on the state of the land. And here they can see them coming in. They're carrying bags full of pomegranates and figs. They've got a pole carried between two of them that's bending beneath the weight of this huge cluster, of, a single cluster of grapes. And, and the 12 come in and they drop all of this right in the middle of the congregation. And there's a buzz, but then Finally, the people hush down and they say, well, how is it? And Palti and the Twelve stand up and says, the land is everything we dreamed. The promises of God are true. It is flowing with milk and honey and all of this fruit. It is abundantly full. And you can hear the excitement of the people as, as they're talking amongst them. All of it is true, they say. However, in the land we saw large cities where there dwell the descendants of Anak. Now, that may not mean much to us, but Israel would hear that and gasp. The Anakim, or the sons, the descendants of Anak, were a legendary race of giants. These are real people who appear every so often in the Old Testament scriptures. This is not just the stuff of fairy tales or fantasy. These are real, well-known men of renown. Human giants. Now, by giant, we're not talking taller than oak trees or, or mountains, okay? Not quite that big. But many of these giants were twice the size of a normal man or more. You know probably the most famous among them, right? Maybe thinking of him now. You know Goliath? He was likely one of the last in the line of Anak, among the last of this generation. But he was just one of many. Some of them are even named in the scripture. Ahiman, Shishai, Talmai, you may not know those names, but there were many people amongst them. So as they say all of this, the land is great. However, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The end of the report of Palti and the spies runs like this. It's at the end of Numbers chapter 13. In verse 32, they say this, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours in its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And that last word of the report would have changed the whole mood of the congregation that's waiting to hear their report. 
They move from cheering now to fearing. There's now this outcry of of weeping. And the people begin to grumble and rebel against God. The story continues on from there. We'll leave the rest of that for some other day. We're not going to carry up here. But I want us to recognize what they have seen. They know that they are about to be up against monsters. They're monstrous, not just because of their size. You know, the people are big, like a monster cookie is big or a monster truck is big. Yes, monstrous for their size, but also they're of monstrous character. These giants are violent warmongers who live in a culture where might makes right. We're told here at the end of of Numbers 13 that, that the Anak are descendants of a much older ancient race of ones called the Nephilim. Nephilim is a Hebrew word that means the fellers which to my ear sounds like it means the good old boys, right? The fellers, not fellas, feller, as in to fell like a tree that you hack down. These are a people who are defined by slashing, by cutting down, not trees, but cutting down people. This is a whole race of big fellers. And that by itself would make them monstrous enough. But in addition to that, it is possible that these people are only partly human. This is where it gets a bit strange and wades into the weeds a bit. But we have to be humble and faithful to the word of God, even when it sounds odd. So I'm going to try. This is where this intersects with our text in Genesis. I haven't forgotten about Genesis. I didn't abandon the text we're at. This giant race of the sons of Anak that the people of Israel have now faced originated from the Nephilim, we're told. And the Nephilim are mentioned by name just one other time in the Bible, and it's here where we are in Genesis 6. If you've forgotten the reference, let me read it again. It's verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, let me say a few things about the Nephilim. A few translations, if you're reading your own Bible, uh, use the word giants. If you're going, I don't even see the word Nephilim in here. Some just say giant, or they put giant in a footnote somewhere. The text does not explicitly say that these people are giants. That's something we deduce from the size of their descendants, the Anak. So these people were also probably giants as well. But most people, just because we're not sure, just leave the original Hebrew there and just call them the Nephilim. What we do learn about the Nephilim is that they are on the earth here in Noah's day and also somehow afterward. We're also told that they're the mighty men, that is the warriors of old, who were of renown, famous for their war. And they also seem to be the product of the ones who were called the sons of God 
who came into the daughters of man. And that's a strange way to describe their origin, that the sons of God came into the daughters of man. Who exactly are these sons of God who were the fathers of the Nephilim? No one knows. People have guesses. There's been many suggestions offered by Bible scholars over the centuries. There, no, uh, no suggestion is completely airtight. There are several possibilities. Each of them have their difficulties. But let me mention a few suggestions of these because they're worth noting. It's possible that the sons of God are a reference to some sort of royal, royal human rulers. You know, people that are great, you know, important, somehow ruled some other land. And that these were people who took many women, maybe into their harems, they produced offspring of, of warriors who were part of, the, of, their, of, their, of their nation. The trouble with that is that there's just little evidence that the phrase sons of God was ever understood uh, to refer to rulers here in the days of Genesis when this is written. So it's po but it's possible. These refer to human rulers. Some have suggested that this is the line of Seth. You know, Cain killed Abel. Abel's gone. Cain has now been exiled. But Seth now is the son, remaining son of, the, of Adam and Eve. And immediately before this, in chapter 5, we get a recap of how God created Adam, and he had a son, Seth, and Seth had a son, Enosh, and, son, and on and on. And all of these would be the sons of God then. The trouble with that is then who are the daughters of men? Are they the sons of Cain? Are they the sons of somebody else? This also has the same problem with the royal piece, the royals piece that there's just little evidence that it would have referred to the line of Cain. Maybe, but probably not. If I lost you here, that's okay. These are technical things. The last suggestion has received the most support over the centuries, and this is where hesitantly I throw my hat in too, that many think that the sons of God refer to fallen angels. The sons of God refer to fallen angels. As odd as that might sound to us, to, to call an angel, especially a fallen angel, a son of God, that meaning does show up in other parts of Scripture. Uh, the beginning of Job refers to it a number of times. Job chapter 1, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is a scene that's not even happening on earth. It's happening in the heavenly court, in the presence of God. These are not humans who are coming in before him. These are angels who are called here in Job, the sons of God. Now, the trouble with this is it's highly unusual in the scripture, at least uncommon, that angelic beings could or would ever breed with humans. That sounds bizarre, and it is. And if indeed it occurred, this would be an exception, not the rule. It's not a common thing at all. It's not something we hear repeated throughout the history of Scripture, but we do hear it probably referenced in Jude. Verse 6. Listen carefully here. Oh, let me find it. Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, 
He, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Did you get all that? Let me summarize. There are angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, that is, are entered into rebellion. Rebellious angels at one point are referenced here, and they're kept in eternal chains. And he compares these rebellious angels, the ones who have gone against God's design, ones who we might later call demons in some way, he compares those to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, who likewise, that is also indulged in sexual immorality and unnatural desire. It seems to suggest here that these fallen angels here in Jude, or perhaps the sons of God, committed, amongst other sins, sexual sin. And as bizarre as that may sound, that may have included unnatural interbreeding with humans, the daughters of men. And so the sons of God came into the daughters of men and their offspring on earth were these monstrous, semi-human, big fellers called the Nephilim. Strange, eh? It's an unsettling thought. Now, can I say every part of that with complete certainty? No. We're looking through a glass darkly here. But what I can say with confidence about the text in Genesis is we know for sure there is sin reverberating through this in reverberation and in reproduction. It says that the sons of God, whoever they are, whether they're human or not, the sons of God in verse 2 saw that the daughters of man were attractive, or the Hebrew means good, saw that they were attractive and took as their wives any they choose. They saw the daughters were good and they took And that pattern is a a clear echo of what Eve had done in the Garden of Eden, that she saw that the fruit was good, and she took. They saw that the daughters were good, and they took. They saw it was good, and so they took. And the outcome of all of this is not just that there was one single race of monstrous offspring, although that is perhaps true, but that this one line of offspring is indicative of what's happening in all mankind. The very next verse after the text that we've read is that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, all man, was great on the earth. Not only the Nephilim, not only these other strange races, but all men, the, the earth is filled with violence, All flesh had corrupted their way, it says, that creation is becoming decreated, torn apart by the men on earth. So are monsters real? You betcha. 
The earth is crawling with them and devouring the land. Now, there are two conclusions, likely more or others, but at least two conclusions I think we can draw from this. Those two conclusions are these. The first, that the serpent still slithers. The serpent still slithers. The last time in Genesis we saw the serpent of Satan was with Adam and Eve in the garden. When he tricked Eve and was cursed by God, but then he seems to just slither off and for all we know seems to disappear. We don't see Satan for most of the rest of the scriptures, but you know he is still there and he still slithers. Whether the Nephilim are these direct, kind of bizarre offspring of Satan and his fallen angels, or whether they were indirectly prodding along the serpent seed and spreading this violence on the earth, either way, Satan is actively dehumanizing us. He is seeking to turn the very image of God into monstrous beasts, and to some degree, he succeeds. We know that man is still responsible for his own wickedness, his own corruption, his own violence. No one can make you sin, not even Satan. Your sin is your responsibility. But we cannot fight an enemy that we don't recognize is there. So this text draws our attention to that. The serpent still slithers, but the second conclusion we can draw is this, that the Lord's judgment is just. The Lord's judgment is just. God's response to the state of the world as we see it at this point in history is that he is grieved to his heart, the text says later that the Lord experiences a sort of regret, it even says, which hopefully we will unpack next week. But the text as it is now is really setting us up to explain what comes next, which is the great flood. And the flood is not just a fun Noah's Ark with a bunch of animals poking out of the windows. The flood is the great pervasive judgment of God where God blots out the men that he created. I will make an end of all flesh, he says, because the world is filled with violence through them. He does this not because God is cruel, not because God is callous, not because God's somehow losing his patience or his temper, but because God's judgment is just and is a justified response to what's happening. Unless we understand God's judgment and the reasons for it, unless we understand God's judgment, we cannot understand his mercy. It would not be merciful of God to turn the other way to a situation like this. 
to allow the Nephilim and all flesh to sort of run rampant in the situation they are, unchecked and spiraling out of control, destroying everything in their path. Something must be done to end this ravenous monstrosity. And what we will eventually see soon through Noah, and later in a much larger way through Jesus, are the links that the Lord God will go to end the monstrosity without making a complete end of us. We will see how his mercy and his judgment fit together, but how the Lord's judgment remains just. Ah, but that's to come. Would you pray with me? Lord, in the great truths and mysteries of your word, would you help us always to be humbled and sobered before you? That we would come to a confident fear for your name, and that this would make us strong to stand against Satan, to resist violence and corruption, and ultimately to trust you always. Lord, you are good. And what you do is good. Help us always to believe you in this, that we would always give praise to your great name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.